on the 20th of October, John Lancaster, who is head of special collections at the Amherst College Library, will be speaking on Peter Parley. And in conjunction with his lecture will be the opening a small exhibition downstairs in this building on the third floor, celebrating 10 years of the Book Arts Press. Next Monday, which is the 13th of October, Dr. Sigurd Kramer, who uh, a commission which is doing a census and inventory of will be speaking on medieval libraries in Germany. That lecture is co-sponsored with the Interdepartmental Committee for Medieval and Renaissance Studies. Archibald Hanna is a you should have known the doctor or G.O. Smith or the first Mr. Goodspeed and so on. This, this of course, uh, is a ploy that old men use to keep young men in their proper places. Uh, this is not what I'm attempting tonight, nor even though the world I'm going to talk about has completely disappeared, is it purely an exercise in nostalgia what I would like to tell you about is at least part of how a fairly mediocre college library became one of the great university libraries. And to do that, I have to go back to Alumni Day at Yale in 1924. The ground had just been broken for a new library building Sterling Library, uh, that massive Gothic cathedral which some of you may have seen. And at the alumni convocation, uh, Professor Tinker of the English Department delivered an eloquent and impassioned address about libraries and their place in a college and a university. Uh, bewailed the fact that the university had not seen fit 
adequately budget and suggested that the alumni themselves should do something about expanding the book collections in the library. He even went so far as to suggest that uh, even a comparatively impecunious alumnus ought to be able to examine one small section of the library stacks that was of particular interest to him and then go out uh, and find some of the books that should be there uh, and were not there. I'm not sure how many of the alumni were impressed, but certainly a number of them were because a few years later, Wilmoth Lewis, who later became, of course, the great Horace Walpole collector, and Frank Altschul, uh, who was the uh, proprietor of Overbrook Press, got together and organized a small group which they called the Library Associates. And that, of course, was the beginning of a Friends of the Library group at Yale. It's an organization which uh, still persists. Two members of that organization, which finally got started in 1930, the same year that Sterling Library was actually open to the public, uh, were a young uh, stockbroker in New Haven named James T. Babb, and a friend of his in the law school, uh, Winlock Miller, who was a Seattle native. Both of them were interested in Pacific Northwest history. Jim Babb had uh, been born and raised in Idaho. And so taking Tinker's words to heart, they went to the university librarian and asked for uh, a stack pass on the grounds that they were library associates and intended to do something about the library. The librarian raised his eyebrows and said he was not aware that being a library associate entitled anyone to any privileges. What did they want to look at in the library? Well, uh, they finally persuaded him to issue them stack passes, but the passes were valid only for the one floor of the library where American history was shelved. Some years later, uh, Winlock Miller went back to Seattle and became a great collector of, of Pacific Northwest history. His grandfather had been one of the pioneers of Washington Territory. And after a few years, Jim Babb, who was already a book collector, although mainly in the field of 19th century American literature, got extremely bored with being uh, a stockbroker and became first associate librarian and then librarian of Yale. And it was under Jim Babb that the greatest expansion in the library collections came. This was partly because he pushed vigorously for funds for acquisitions. Uh, it was partly because he hunted down uh, book collections that might be acquired for the library, but mainly because he collected not only books, but collectors, and uh, found a way to make them curators of the fields in which their enthusiasms 
already lay and to make sure that, that the collection would come with the collector to the library. Uh, this uh, was in many ways a triumph because it secured for the library uh, enthusiastic people who served, if not entirely without pay, at least uh, on a bare minimum of salary and much of that was always turned back to the library in terms of acquisitions that the curator wanted but the library couldn't afford. Uh, for example, Thomas Marston was a Yale graduate, had then gotten a doctorate at Harvard, had come back to Yale. Uh, he was not a wealthy man, but he was uh, comfortably well enough off so that he did not need to work for a living, and so he came to Yale as curator of classics. And over the years, uh, put together an extremely uh, wide collection of medieval and Renaissance text manuscripts. Now this was at a period when most people who were collecting medieval manuscripts were interested only in illuminated manuscripts. Uh, Tom was interested in the early texts of Plato, Aristotle, many of, of the scholastics, and because he had very little competition, by the time he finally retired from the library in uh, the late 1960s, uh, the market had caught up with him, but his work was done, and there was a great collection there. On, on perhaps not quite so significant a scale, uh, Warren Lowenhope was a passionate collector of book plates. And uh, uh, he brought his collection, he brought other collections, and today I think the library's collection of book plates is uh, uh, one of the finest in the country. Alexander Vitor uh, became curator of maps and devoted his life to it and so on and so on. Uh, Jim Babb used to complain about his nine prima donnas uh, that uh, they were always pestering him for money. Uh, but uh, as a matter of fact, I think he would have been uh, very upset if a week had gone by and not one curator had come in to tell him about some great collection that was coming on the market and that all Jim needed to do uh, was to go out to the alumni and raise another $100,000, and Yale could have it. The system was eminently successful in its way, and yet uh, its success was its own undoing. Because when these curators uh, eventually died or retired in the normal human course of events, and it became necessary to re, uh, replace them. Since the university had never funded these positions in the library, uh, the university saw no reason to begin now. And so, as one by one the original curators disappeared, in most cases there was absolutely uh, no way of finding a successor on the same terms. This, I suppose, uh, was partly because that period of the late 20s, all through the 30s, 40s, and 50s, book collecting uh, was pretty much dominated 
by wealthy private collectors. That is not, I believe, as true today as it was then. And uh, today it is the institutional libraries uh, that are the bidders at auction sales. Not entirely, of course, but certainly far more uh, than 50 years ago. So the, the presence of uh, a bookman rather than a professional library administrator as librarian of Yale, the presence of Donald Wing, the big bibliographer, uh, as head of acquisitions for the library, uh, certainly had a great deal to do with the growth of the collections. But the Times had something to do with it also. It is hard to believe, but in the late 1940s and 50s when I started at Yale, scholarly publishing uh, was such a small proportion of the number of books published each year and, in fact, the total number of books published each year was so small that Donald Wing could practically take care of the library's current needs simply by placing a standing order with every university press in the United States. Uh, that meant the, that current acquisitions could be handled on Friday afternoon by Donald and one clerk. The rest of the time he spent reading antiquarian booksellers' catalogs. In fact, uh, as an undergraduate at Yale in his class book, uh, under ambition, he had stated to be paid for reading booksellers' catalogs. And read them he did. Uh, these days, of course, if a bookseller's catalog comes in, perhaps a bibliographer will scan it and mark things to be checked and then turn it over to a clerk to be searched. In Donald's day, nobody searched a catalog except Donald, uh, and he could do it faster uh, than any three clerks. As a matter of fact, of course, in those days, the Yale Library had only, I think, about three million volumes, and four times out of five, Donald could tell you without even going to the card catalog whether Yale had a particular book uh, or not. So that uh, it... It meant that the library was able to concentrate for 20 years at least on filling in the gaps, the books they had not bought since the founding of the university uh, in 1708 or whenever it was. And there were a great many of, of those gaps filled in that day. Today, I'm afraid, if you go into the bibliography department, uh, you will not find uh, any antiquarian booksellers' catalogs, at least very few. Uh, those go to the Beinecke Library, but uh, the main library does uh, and can do uh, very little in the way of going back to fill in gaps with the sheer volume of publishing that is going on today and that the library needs to cope with. I myself came to the library in a sort of, of left-handed manner. I was nearly through with uh, a doctorate in American history at Yale uh, 
And I realized that I had no great vocation for teaching, but I didn't know what else you could do with a PhD in history. And someone said, well, have you ever thought of the library? I hadn't. But I went over and talked to David Clift, who at that time was associate librarian. And David said, oh, we can certainly use you. In fact, we can train you faster and better on the job. But then you will never be able to work anywhere except Yale. You had better trot down to Columbia and get your union card. Uh, and so I commuted for a year uh, to New York. And during that year, I was also working 20 hours a week in the library. And it just happened that the library had received over the past three or four or five years the great Western Americana collection that had been formed by William Robertson Cole. And they were just beginning to check his collection against the library's own holdings. And that was what I did for 20 hours a week while I was a student here. And the day uh, after I took my last examination here, uh, I started full time uh, as a senior cataloger uh, working on the cataloging of the co-collection. By the way, uh, to show you how times have, have changed, I started as a senior cataloger in the second step of the grade at the munificent salary of $2,820 a year. Uh, but instructors at Yale with their PhDs were starting at 3,000 then, so that was uh, perhaps not so far uh, out of line. It took three years to catalog Mr. Coe's collection, and uh, this, this, of course, is an opportunity that very few curators have ever had. Uh, every single book in that collection had gone through my hands by the time it was open to the public, and I became uh, a librarian of it. Uh, it was typical of Mr. Coe, uh, who, like many wealthy elderly gentlemen, uh, was extremely conservative and extremely autocratic, that when Jim Babb wrote to him and said, I have appointed as librarian of your collection a Mr. Archie Hanna, and his qualifications are so-and-so, Coe wrote back and said, very well, if I ever want to see the young man, I will let you know. Fortunately, he never did want to see me uh, uh, because I know that, that every time that Jim Babb was summoned to Oyster Bay to uh, Mr. Coe's residence there, uh, uh, his secretary had a bad time for three days before and two days afterward. Uh, uh, it could be a fairly harrowing uh, experience. When uh, Jim called me into his office and said, uh, all right, I'm giving you the Western collection. The only instructions he gave me were, how well you do with it will depend on your relations with the booksellers. Now get out of here and go meet them. And uh, for 30 years, uh, I did just that. And this, this was, I think, the third great factor that influenced the growth of collections at Yale. 
It was the Yale Library's attitude toward booksellers. I don't know what things are like today, but in that day, uh, far too many librarians regarded uh, booksellers as natural antagonists rather than allies. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, one of the greatest uh, friends, uh, quite unintentionally and I am sure unwittingly, that the Yale Library had was the head of special collections in another Ivy League university who had managed to antagonize uh, 19 out of every 20 antiquarian booksellers uh, in the country. And the result was, of course, that they then offered things first to Yale. Certainly, uh, far more of my education about Western Americana came uh, from the booksellers than ever came either from my graduate courses in history or uh, from my courses in library school. Sometimes the education was tactful, sometimes it was not. But I can still remember uh, old Ed Everstadt, uh, who was the leading dealer in Western Americana, not only in the country, but probably in the world, uh, showing me a book or a pamphlet and saying, now, of course, I don't need to point out to a historian of your experience that the real significance of this lies in such and such and so and so. And I would say, why, yes, of course, Mr. Everstead, I realize that. Uh, he was also the kind of bookseller who would say to me uh, when I came into his shop, I'm glad you came in this morning. Now, here's this little pamphlet that I just paid $60 for, and I'm going to let you have it for only 950 And an hour later, I was thanking him for the privilege of being allowed to purchase it. As a matter of fact, in that particular case, uh, in the 27 years that followed, no other copy ever came on the market, so perhaps uh, he was uh, not... Uh, so far wrong after all. Soon after uh, I became librarian of the collection, uh, Dick Wormser, who was then uh, uh, head of the old book table here in New York, I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with this organization, but it's a group of antiquarian booksellers who associate on uh, grounds purely of, of friendship and sociability and hold monthly meetings and uh, invite speakers. And Dick invited me to come and talk to the group uh, about uh, the Western collection, and I was overwhelmed by all of these, these famous booksellers and by their friendliness. So when I got back to New Haven and uh, was telling Jim Babb about it, I said, uh, couldn't we invite them here sometime? And he immediately took over and said, well, of course. Uh, now let's see. Uh, we'll uh, have cocktails in the rare book room, and I'll arrange for a dinner at Maury's, and we'll have special tours of the library for them. Uh, it was a great success, and afterward, one of the booksellers said, you know, Jim, over the years, I think we have entertained at least two or three dozen librarians as our guests, this is the only time that any library has ever invited us. Or 
the first year that the ILAB met in New York, in fact, this was the first time they had ever met in the United States, Jim invited all 150 of them and their wives to New Haven for a day. Uh, there were special exhibitions in Sterling. This was before Beinecke was built. In those days, as you went down that long cathedral-like nave with the exhibition cases in the center, when you got to the far end there in a case all by itself was, of course, the Gutenberg Bible. And one French bookseller came down the line of, of cases looking at one thing and another and finally got to the Gutenberg Bible, sniffed and said, huh, a trimmed copy. He did not offer us one with, with wider margins. Well, it was really a great do. Lunch at the Lawn Club, uh, cocktails at the Medical Historical Library, uh, tours, exhibits, and then to top it all off, uh, Fritz and Laura Liebert invited all of them out to the house for uh, a buffet supper. Some of them did not leave until the next morning. Uh, I suppose that this may have cost the library some two or three thousand dollars. What it did in terms of goodwill, uh, there is absolutely no way of figuring. Or again, Jim Babb came up with the idea of bringing to New Haven children of European antiquarian booksellers to work one year on a sort of internship in the library. Oh, we had uh, the daughter uh, of a Parisian bookseller, uh, two people from a German bookseller, uh, Keith Fletcher from London, uh, Mary Ann Krauss, and that was particularly good because uh, her father paid her salary the whole time she was at Yale. The, they were supposed to work in a series of departments in the library. It didn't always work out quite as it was planned because uh, the first department they were assigned to never wanted to give them up uh, at the end of the uh, specified period, and, and uh, you had to fight to get this person uh, transferred to your own department. Uh, it was certainly good for the library these, these people were, of course, tremendously knowledgeable uh, and very enthusiastic, and I think it was good for them because it gave them a chance to see a large American university library and how it worked. The program eventually came to an end, I think, not because we ran out of European booksellers' children, but because uh, immigration and naturalization made so much difficulty about... Uh, uh, allowing work permits that uh, we finally had to drop uh, the whole program. So that with that type of relationship uh, between the library and the booksellers, uh, we had first chance uh, at a great many uh, books and manuscripts that we might otherwise uh, never have even seen. And uh, I presume it is still the same way, but uh, in those days, at least, the antiquarian book world was a very uh, personal sort of world. 
and things depended very much on personal relationships. You might order from a bookseller's catalog for years, but if you were nothing but a signature at the bottom of a letter or a voice over the phone, uh, you weren't uh, anybody. But once you had called on him in his shop, once you had eaten and drunk with him, when you were on first name terms, uh, then he was apt to remember you and think of you when something uh, uh, good came into the shop. Uh, I, of course, do not need to add that uh, that alone was not enough. Uh, it also meant that curators had to harry the treasurer's office to make sure that booksellers' bills uh, got paid uh, at least within a reasonable amount of time. And we were also taught that if you once ordered a book from a catalog and then found that it was not quite what you wanted or expected, you did not just ship it back. Uh, you first phoned and asked permission and explained why you wanted to send it back. Uh, the results uh, were very good, uh, I think, uh, uh, for both sides. We have just a few minutes left. And so why don't I tell a few stories about some of the booksellers and the old-time collectors. One of the first Western collections that ever came to Yale, and it was long before uh, we had a rare book room, or, or, and certainly ages before there was a separate Western Americana collection, was Henry Wagner's Texas and Middle West collection. Uh, Wagner, of course, was one of the great collectors of his day, particularly in the field of Western Americana. He was a Yale graduate of, I think, about 1881. He worked for the Guggenheims, who sent him to various places in the world, and every place he went, he formed a new book collection. He was also uh, a bibliographer, but he was the type of bibliographer who liked to collect in a still fairly unknown field, do a preliminary bibliography, and, and once the spade work had been done, then he rather lost interest and he would dispose of that collection and go on to a new field. Uh, so that uh, for Western Americana, his bibliographies are, are still standard works. His uh, bibliography of the Spanish Southwest then of the Plains and the Rockies, which is now in its fourth or fifth edition under the third successive uh, editor. Uh, he did uh, an outstanding work on the early cartography uh, of the northwest coast of North America, and uh, so on and so on. Uh, Yale only managed to acquire a few of his collections, uh, fortunately, they got that many. And, and sometimes it was by a very peculiar combination of arrangements. The Texas and Middle West collection came to Yale as part gift, part outright purchase, and then partly an annuity that the library set up uh, of which the income was paid to Wagner in his lifetime and then became a book fund for the library on his death. Uh, 
Uh, and as a matter of fact, of course, one of the, of the things that was most helpful to me uh, as, as curator was the fact that each of the six collections in Western Americana had at least a small endowed fund for its perpetuation. Anyway, Ed uh, and Wagner were, of, uh, of course, acquainted. Wagner bought books from Ed. Uh, uh, one time, Wagner was in New York. He stayed, as usual, at the Engineers Club, and he summoned Ed and said, this is my last day in New York. If you've got anything to show me, bring it down to the club, and I'll look at it. And Ed trotted on down to the club with half a dozen things he thought would be of interest. And Wagner said, tell me about these, Eberstadt. Ed said, the old so-and-so, he knew more about those books than anyone in the world. But I went into my song and dance, and when I got through, he laughed and said, Everstadt, you're the damnedest liar in this country. He said, there aren't any of these I want. He said, uh, however, uh, there is a little overland journey I want, but it's so rare you'll never see it. It's called Reed's Tramp, and it was printed in Selma, Alabama. So Wagner went off to get a train back to California. Ed went uh, walking back to the shop, and on the way, as he was passing a small secondhand bookstore, the owner came out on the sidewalk and said, Mr. Everstadt, I have something for you. And Ed, still smarting, said, What is it? Reed's Tramp? And Ed said, How did you know? <laughs> he said, Printed in Selma, Alabama. The man said, I thought I had something here that was so rare you would never even have heard of it. He said, I was going to ask you a lot of money for it, but I guess it isn't as scarce as I thought. You can have it for $50. And Ed said, All right, I'll take it and went on walking. And before he got back to the shop, who should he meet but Dr. Rosenbach, who said, Ah, oh, good morning, Everstadt. What's that you have in your hand? And Ed said, Well, it's nothing in your line, Doctor. It's a little overland called Reed's Tramp. And the doctor said, Ah, oh, printed in Selma, Alabama. Uh, what will you take for it? And Ed said, Well, I took the first impossible figure that came into my mind, uh, and said, I've got to get 250 for it. And the doctor said, very well, no need to send it. I'll carry it with me. And Ed got back to the office and wrote Wagner a letter and said, for 15 minutes this morning, I had a copy of Reed's Tramp, but the doctor got it away from me for 250, and I don't know when I'll find another. And in due course, he got a postcard from Wagner saying, forget it, I stopped off in Texas on the way home and bought a copy from a clergyman for 75 cents. <laughs> that, that was not, of course, the only uh, time that Ed and the doctor locked horns. Uh, one time the doctor was in Ed's shop and uh, looking around the shelves, he, he picked out an overland journey and he said, uh, uh, what do you want for this, Ed? And Ed said, uh, well, I think $75. And the doctor took it with him. And after he'd been gone an hour, Ed got to thinking about it. And he called him up and said, uh, Doctor, are you willing to take a profit on that book? And the doctor said, well, certainly. He said, you can have it back for a hundred and a quarter. And so Ed said, send it back. And uh, some weeks later, the doctor was back in Ed's shop. And he said, Ed, what will you take for that book? And Ed said, well, uh, 
it was way too low. Uh, it'll have to go for at least 250. Well, over a year or so, the book went back and forth and back and forth until finally one day Ed called the doctor and said, now doctor, about that overland journey, and the doctor said, Ed, I'm sorry, I sold it to a customer. Ed said, sold it? Why, you damn fool, we were both getting rich on that book. <laughs> it uh, is a long time now, of course, and and uh, the, the booksellers who were the leading figures in the field uh, when I was a, a young uh, uh, curator are gone now. The great book collectors, uh, Thomas W. Streeter, uh, Holliday, Everett Graff, and, and many others have also disappeared. But I'm happy to say that of the half a dozen greatest collections in the field of Western Americana that were put together in this century, uh, only two of them ended up being sold at auction, the Holiday Collection and the Streeter Collection. And the, the Streeter Collection, uh, the sale is perhaps an example of the quirkiness of the book collecting world because the basic reason for the auction sale of the Streeter collection uh, was that while Tom's family were not hostile, they were never really sympathetic to the idea of his book collection and always felt that, that somehow he was probably wasting his money uh, on all these tattered little pamphlets and broadsides. And so, uh, of course, uh, the collection went to auction in a series of seven sales over three and a half years, and the roughly 3,000 items brought in a little over $3 million. Uh, that certainly convinced uh, the family that uh, he had not been wasting his money. On the other hand, he had an answer for those trendy collectors uh, who buy with the thought that collecting books is a great way to make uh, a killing, uh, that they will be a fantastically profitable investment. Tom who was no mean financier himself, when he was treasurer of the New York Historical Society, uh, by a careful management of their investments, he quadrupled the size of their endowment. And yet Tom once said, if you collect books, if you are willing to put in as much time, effort, and research uh, as you would, if you were investing in stocks, if you have excellent taste and good luck and then sell at the proper time, you may come out no worse than as if you had put your money in AT&T, and in any case, you will have had the pleasure of owning your books. 
one final note uh, in order to uh, uh, counteract uh, uh, some of the complimentary remarks that were made at the beginning. Uh, about 10 years after I had been appointed librarian of the Western Americana Collection at Yale, I was talking with Jim Babb one day, and he said, you know, he said, when I gave you that job, I was sure you couldn't handle it, but there didn't seem to be anybody else around. And fortunately for me, there wasn't. If you have any questions, I'll be happy to try to answer them. I've already forgotten the title. Uh, there, there were uh, a number of them, actually. Uh, this, as I recollect it, was uh, the reminiscences of uh, a man who had been uh, uh, both cowboy and cattle rustler uh, somewhere up in the Montana, Dakota area.